Hi and welcome to St Ninian's Sermons Podcast. My name's Stuart, I'm the Minister at St Ninian's in Stonehouse, which is in Scotland. We are a local ecumenical partnership between the Church of Scotland and the United Reformed Church and that means we reflect both traditions in our work and worship. So let's listen to our reading for this week and then get on to the sermon. First reading this morning is taken from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 7 to 14. The Lord says, Sing joy for Israel, the greatest of nations. Sing our song of praise. The Lord has saved his people. He has rescued all who are left. I will bring them from the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. The blind and the lame will come with them, pregnant women and those about to give birth. They will come back, a great nation. My people will return weeping, praying as I lead them back. I will guide them into streams of water on a smooth road where they will not stumble. I am like a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my eldest son. The Lord says, Nations, listen to me and proclaim my words on the far-off shores. I scattered my people, but I will gather them and guard them as a shepherd guards his flock. I have set Israel's people free and have saved them from a mighty nation. They will come and sing for joy on Mount Zion and be delighted with my gifts, gifts of corn and wine and olive oil, gifts of sheep and cattle. They will be like a well-watered garden. They will have everything they need. Then the young women will dance and be happy and men young and old will rejoice. I will comfort them and turn their mourning into joy, their sorrow into gladness. I will fill the priests with the richest food and satisfy all the needs of my people. I, the Lord, have spoken. The second reading is from John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. The Word of Life In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. From the very beginning, the Word was with God. Through him, God made all things. Not one thing in all creation was made without him. The Word was a source of life, and this life brought light to humanity. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has never put it out. God sent his messenger, a man named John, who came to tell people about the light so that all should hear the message and believe. He himself was not the light. He came to tell about the light. This was the light, real light, the light that comes into the world and shines on everyone. The word was in the world and God made the world through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own country but his own people did not receive him. Some, however, did receive him and believed in him, so he gave them the right to become God's children. They did not become God's children by natural means, that is, by being born as the children of a human father. God himself was their father. The word became a human being and full of grace and truth, lived among us, We saw his glory, the glory which he received as the Father's only Son. John spoke about him. 
He cried out, This is the one I was talking about when I said, He comes after me, but he is greater than I am, because he existed before I was born. Out of the fullness of his grace, he has blessed us all, giving us one blessing after another. God gave the law through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only Son, who is the same as God and is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Amen. So, who's taken down all their Christmas tree decorations and all that kind of stuff? That's quite a lot. Who's, who's still got their tree up? Right, you're my people. I'm liking you. But most of us have, haven't we? Most of the evidence of Christmas has been completely eradicated from most of our homes by now. You can buy Easter eggs and hot cross buns in the supermarket. Valentine's Day cards will soon festoon the shelves and people will try and get you to buy all manner of nonsense to prove that you love somebody. But tomorrow is Epiphany, Twelfth Night, the day that we remember when the Magi, the wise men, visited Jesus. The changing of the season from Christmas to Epiphany. In the Reformed tradition, which we are part of, much of that seasonal stuff of the church was ditched. John Knox, the great Scottish reformer, thought that Christmas was a load of nonsense. That's not what he said, but I'm not going to say what he said. Christmas wasn't really celebrated in Scotland. I think I told you this before. It was actually illegal until the 1950s. Christmas was illegal until the 1950s. A couple of hundred years ago, people just didn't celebrate Christmas. And when they started to celebrate Christmas, trees would go up on Christmas Eve and stay up until the 6th of January, the 12 days of Christmas. That's what the song's about. That's why Hogmanay is such a big thing in Scotland, because we didn't really celebrate Christmas. So we picked something else that was close by and got drunk a lot. But we've thrown ourselves wholeheartedly into Christmas these days, more and more, it seems. Shops go into Christmas mode just around Halloween or June. And artificial trees mean that you can put your Christmas tree up on the 1st of December, and by the time Christmas comes, you're absolutely fed up with the whole thing. And most of us can't wait to get it down and get back to some kind of normality. The advent calendars are all in the bin, the chocolate's gone, people have gone back to work. Who went back to work on Friday? That was weird. Wasn't it? Go back to work on a Friday. Everybody thinks it's Monday, but it's Friday and you've got the next day off. And you sit at your desk for a while wondering what on earth it is you do. Yeah, not just me then. Most of us have begun the process of recovering from a diet of cheese and crisps and alcohol. And the schools aren't even back yet. So some people are still on holiday until tomorrow. Sad, isn't it? The anticipation of Advent can pass us by in all the biz and the preparation. Or it can seem really, really long. A long time to wait until Christmas eventually comes. All that waiting and no carols. And then Christmas comes and it's over in the blink of an eye. A flurry of wrapping paper and cooking for a hundred and all the stress that comes with that, followed by collapsing in a heap and the promise that next year it will be different. 
And when everything's packed away, we're left with a few extra kilos and a long, long, long January of beans and toast for dinner every night. And feeling somehow that we've missed something important in all the busyness. But it's still Christmas, at least until tomorrow. Or if you're Episcopalian until the 2nd of February when it's Candlemas, you can wait for ages and ages if you want. We'll still get a chance on this second last day of Christmas to discover something about the birth of Jesus and perhaps with all the decorations down and life back to some kind of normality, perhaps that's the best way to do it. After all, that's what happened in the first place. A young woman gave birth in the middle of life, ordinary life, with ordinary people going about their ordinary business, just like we are. Throughout Advent and across Christmas, we've been following mostly Matthew's Gospel. On Christmas Eve, we had a quick visit to Luke so that we could get angels and shepherds. And both Matthew and Luke locate the story of Jesus in a very particular moment in time. Luke tells us about an event, a thing that happened, a census. Augustus was the Caesar, the emperor of Rome. So we know when that was. There's a time and a place for that. Quirinius was governor of Syria. So we can narrow it down even more until those two things cross over. So that gives us a window of time in which the birth of Jesus took place. Matthew uses Herod, Herod the Great. So we know that it happened during his reign. But unlike Matthew and Luke, that's not how the story is presented to us in John's Gospel and the amazing prologue that we read today. This piece of writing that sets the scene for the fourth Gospel that tells the story of Jesus. John sets the scene in an altogether different way that's, that's almost outside of time. He invites us to step away from our clocks and our calendars and to consider something even bigger, even more profound, with much further reaching consequences. A prologue is the bit before the story. Often in a book it sets the scene or it tells us something that we need to know but that isn't really part of the story that's going to happen. So it gives us important information. Although this prologue's a bit like a musical overture. It kind of tells the whole story in 18 verses. And then John goes on to unpack the rest of the story in his gospel after that. In the beginning. In the beginning. Those words have been used before somewhere, haven't they? At the beginning. In Genesis. They're the very first words in the Bible, but they're also the very first words in John's Gospel. In the beginning, God created. And the very first thing that God created was light, and it was good. So John takes that idea and gives us even more. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was in the beginning with God. For John, the Word eventually has another name, Christ. 
and all things came into being through Christ. And without Christ, not one thing came into being. So when God created the world, someone else, the Christ, was part of that creative process with God. Christ, the Word. In Greek, it's logos. And logos means much more than just a word on a page. Logos is everything that's connected with the idea that the Word tries to convey. So I'm going to ask you all to shut your eyes. Close your eyes. Don't fall asleep. So I'm going to say a word, and I want you to imagine what it is that I'm saying. So it's really difficult. Chair. Okay? You all imagine a chair? Okay, open your eyes. Uh, What does your chair look like, Anne? It's one of these. Okay, did everybody imagine one of these? Why not? They're not very... So did you imagine a comfy chair? Okay, so what was your chair like? Just a nice comfy chair. What colour was it? Beige. Okay, did everybody imagine a beige chair? Why not? There you go. Margaret had a red chair. Why do we all imagine different chairs? I said chair. I mean, obviously a chair's a chair, isn't it? It's funny how we do that, isn't it? We go to our own experience and we imagine something that we know or that we would like. There are lots of chairs. Chair's just a shorthand for an idea, isn't it? Really. It helps us to think about a thing. And we know what the thing is. So what makes a chair a chair? What does a chair have to have? A seat? Four legs. legs, Does it? Okay. Four legs. Probably. Did everybody imagine a seat with four legs? No? How many? Get you. So 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 a single pillar. Okay. So it can have one leg. Can it have two That'd be difficult. But, yeah, I suppose you could manufacture something that had two. Yeah? Okay, what else does it need? A back. Yeah, it needs a back, doesn't it? Because if it doesn't have a back, what is it? It's a stool, and that's different. Okay? So there's maybe some minimum requirements to what a a chair is. Armrests. Oh, see, well, we've got a bit of controversy. So what's... Why not? It's not essential. Yeah, but it could have them. Yeah. Yeah. Or does that make it an armchair? That's a different... Ah, see? That's a whole different thing, isn't it? It's complicated. So a simple idea like chair actually is quite complicated. Anyway, you get what I mean. A word conveys an idea... But the word can never be the whole thing, can it? We need that's why we have adjectives. So we we say a blue chair. You know, and that helps us further down the road we can imagine what colour the chair is, so that gives us a bit more context. And that's where translation falls short, isn't it? Because logos is the whole thing. It's all of it. It's all of that. 
both the word and the idea. The concept behind the word. The complete thing. Everything that it's trying to encapsulate. Whereas I'm not sure our word, word, this is complicated, isn't it? It's the same thing. So when God speaks the words that bring light into being, it's much more than a sentence that goes, let there be light. It's much, much more than that. John tells us something amazing. It was the word, the logos, that co-created the light and everything else. And in that creative process, God and the word, the logos, embarked on not just creating a load of stuff, but life. A life that this word, this logos, the Christ, would eventually enter into. A life that would shine in the darkness, be a beacon for all of us. And I think that's a comforting thing, particularly in the long, dark winter nights. But, but, but that's not the end of it. Because all of that seems really far away and distant in the beginning. Well, we're not at the beginning. We're a long, 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 long time after the beginning. So sure, it's nice, it's comforting, it's profound even, but it feels very far away. A bit like God is somewhere else. That the Word is separate from us, different. But John's not finished at that point, thank goodness. Because he tells us something incredible. And the Word became flesh and lived among us. What? Just a minute ago, the Word was creating the universe. At the beginning of all things, and now this. The Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. One sentence. Christmas. No angels, no shepherds, no Mary and Joseph, no wise men, and thankfully no donkey or innkeepers. But still not in the story. Just the creator of all things. Around since the beginning of everything. Part of God, but in some way separate. Chooses to be born in flesh. And just as the words that we use to describe that are important, so is the stuff that goes in between. The spaces, the commas, the full stops, punctuation matters. I think I've mentioned before how important it is that we use good grammar to talk about God. We need to be careful and precise about what we say because it matters. Let's eat, grandma, is different from let's eat, grandma. Isn't it? If you stick a comma in after eat, it's a suggestion that we go to eat, Grandma, as opposed to let's eat our grandmother. Yeah, commas are important. They save lives. This sentence has commas. I like commas. Commas are cool. Because they separate the clauses of a sentence. They help us to understand who or what the sentence is about. The Word became flesh and lived among us, comma. 
That could be a sentence in its own, couldn't it? It could be a full stop. The Word became flesh and lived among us. Full stop. It's a great sentence. It's one of my favorite sentences in the whole of the Bible. The very idea of the Word, any Word becoming a solid thing that you can smell and touch and taste and see, and that's an amazing thing. A Word becoming a reality. The very thought of the very essence of God becoming flesh, just like us, that's incredible. God became human and lived a human life just like us. Some translations use the the phrase, made his home among us, instead of lived. And I like that idea, but that's a bit too settled and fixed for me. It sounds like he built a house and stayed in it. My favorite is that God tabernacled among us. The tabernacle was the tent that the Ark of the Covenant was kept in. They they eventually called it the tent of meeting because that's where Moses met God. God used to live on a mountain and Moses had to go up the mountain to see God. But eventually the people moved away from the mountain and so they built a tent in the middle of their encampment and God came to the tent and that's where he met Moses, the tabernacle. And the tabernacle moved around with the people, so God was always with them. I like that idea. Wherever they went, God was there. What a powerful image that we can call on, that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Wherever we go, Christ goes. But why? For what purpose? Why on earth would God do such a thing? Well, the next part of the sentence tells us more. We have seen his glory, comma. So the glory is the word's glory. And because the word became flesh, we've seen it. It's not an abstract idea anymore. It's a thing. It's a person. We can look at it and touch it and see it. Remember in the story of Moses, when Moses does go up the mountain and meets with God, his face glowed and the people were terrified of him. Because he'd encountered God and they saw that he had seen God and so they made him wear a veil because they couldn't handle it. And that was just someone who had seen God. That wasn't looking at God himself. So Jesus is someone like us. And we can look in him and we can see him and we can see that glory because glory means true nature. We can look at Jesus and see the true nature of that, the word. But as a comedian, Jimmy Cricket, remember him? Who remembers Jimmy Cricket? Yeah, wee guy, Irish guy, wellies, suit, funny hat. He used to lean in and go, come here, there's more. There's more to the sentence. Because after that comma comes this, the glory of a father's only son. Comma. It's a big long sentence, this. So that tells us that the word is the son of the father. And the father is God. And Jesus' glory, his true nature, is the same as God's glory, the same as God's true nature. So what we have seen in Jesus, we can say about God. So what is that true nature? Full of grace and truth. The Word, the Son of God, the Christ, 
who shows us what God's true nature is like because we have seen him and he's the same as God his true nature is to be full of grace and truth Jesus is a light in the darkness because we look at him and we see grace and truth and those things are pure and true and good and we know that evil and hatred can never overcome them even in the darkest of times This one sentence tells us everything about Christmas in a way that Matthew and Luke with their wise men and their shepherds just can't do. But it requires a bit more work, doesn't it? It requires us to have a bit more patience and to to sit and to think about what that one sentence actually means. It requires us to use our imagination. But for me, and I hope for you, This one sentence means everything. It means much more than Christmas trees and lights and tinsel and turkey and presents and even mince pies could ever mean. The Word became flesh and lived among us. Comma. Comma because it's not the end. It's not a one-off thing. It's not a thing that happened in one particular moment in time when the emperor was Augustus and Quirinius was the governor of Syria and Herod the Great was the king of Judea. For John, it's an always and forever thing that happens in every moment of every day. I said at the beginning that the reformers didn't like Christmas. They didn't like it because it takes away from the understanding. Theirs was about Easter. That Easter day happened every day. That resurrection happens every day. So why on earth would you confine that to one Sunday? And Christmas is the same. When the world was dark, not just in the winter, but when dark times were there, even when the decorations and the lights are packed away, when everything is quiet and everybody's gone back to work, back to their daily lives, back to school, God came God comes God creeps in beside us and only those who dare to believe that God might do something different notice that the word became flesh and lives among us always and forever. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments, questions or thoughts about this week's sermon, then please do get in touch. We create this podcast at anchor.fm where you can leave us a voice message. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We post the audio of the whole service each week on our website. There are details of all of this in the show notes. If you're in the neighbourhood and want to join us in person, we meet for worship every Sunday at 11am. We'd love to see you.